Okay, thank you so much. Appreciate that worship and that prayer time very much. If you would turn to um, the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and we want to find some encouragement from God's Word from this chapter this morning. It's a lot in our world these days that encourages us to think about the return of the Lord in light of all that's happening, and the book of Revelation obviously is very much about the return of Christ and what we should expect before he comes back and how we need to live and think and trust him in these days. One of the things that's helpful to keep in mind is that um, we are naturally fallen sinners in a fallen world. And without the light of the gospel and without the grace of God, we make poor decisions. As someone has said, it's what we do as fallen sinners. And obviously for the secular world, October 31st, today is Halloween. It's the celebration of all kinds of things depending on who you are. Uh, it started out evidently as, a, as um, some kind of um, feast in which they sought to ward off evil spirits. Uh, by dressing up and things like that. Now, for some people, it seems to be a celebration of the dead and spooky things and that sort of thing. And there's a a commercial, it's actually an insurance commercial, that kind of is a, a spoof on horror movies. And in this commercial, there are four young people, two girls and two guys. It's in the middle of the night. Many of you have probably seen the commercial. And they're running in the middle of the night. They're scared to death. And they come upon this spooky-looking house. And one of them says, let's hide in the attic. The other one says, no, let's hide in the basement. And then one says, hey, why don't we just get in the running car and drive away? That kind of thing. And, and another guy says, are you crazy? Let's go hide behind the um, chainsaws in the barn over there. And so they said, hey, that's a great idea. And they all run and go behind the chainsaws and you got the scene where this guy is standing there watching them and he's got this mask on and he kind of raises his mask and he kind of goes. And the tagline or what is said at that point is this, the voiceover says, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. It's what you do. <laughs> and that is a spoof because it, it seems like that's always the case in horror movies. People are making terrible decisions and putting themselves in harm's way. It's what you do in a horror movie. Well, the reality is we live in a fallen world. And apart from God's grace, we make poor decisions. It is what we do as sinners who do not see God as we should, do not see ourselves as we should, do not see life as we should, do not believe that life is found in God. And therefore, we find ourselves making poor decisions. The good news is, by God's grace working in our hearts, through the gospel, through the truth, we can make wise decisions and we can put our hope in the right place in a very dangerous world. The one thing about Halloween that is true is that this world is a dangerous place. It highlights the reality of death. It highlights the reality of evil. Now, many times people aren't relating rightly to the truth of evil, They seem to be almost blind to the fact that evil is not only outside of them, but it's in them. And it has a real threat 
to their very eternal existence. But Halloween, in a sense, is a reminder that we live in a dangerous world where there is real evil. There are real demons. There, there are real evil beings that seek to steal and kill and destroy us. And it's through the truth of the gospel that we can be rescued from a very dangerous world. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's why, as believers, we celebrate October 31st as Reformation Day, right? The Protestant Reformation, the recovery of the gospel after darkness, light is the theme of the Reformation. And so it relates to what was said, as you might remember, um, when uh, Frodo would talk to Bilbo, or excuse me, Bilbo would talk to Frodo and say, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no, no, no knowing where you might be swept off to. Think about that. He's saying, uh, you live your life, you leave your front door, and the world is the kind of place that if you aren't keeping your feet, you'll be swept off to who knows where. That is what we find happening in these letters, I believe. The Lord Jesus is addressing the fact that his people at least those assemblies that profess to be his people are living in a dangerous world where there is real evil and there are real temptations and there are real pitfalls. And if you don't keep your feet, if you don't keep your feet on the solid rock of the truth of the gospel, you can be swept away who knows where. And what we find in these letters is the Lord Jesus speaking in love to professing Christians and telling them, You need to be awake. You need to be alert. You need to be aware of the dangers of the world that you're in. And so these letters that the Lord Jesus wrote to these churches back in the first century are actually letters meant for us today. They highlight key dangers that all of us are exposed to in various ways. And so there's a sense in which we, like we did last week, we asked the question, you know, what do you think the Lord Jesus would say to you if he wrote you a letter today? Uh, he would say to you what you find in chapter 2 and chapter 3 for sure. I know that much. Because at the end of each of these letters it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, not to that one individual church, and not just those seven churches in the first century, but to the churches of Christ throughout the ages. And so we know for sure that these two chapters are what Jesus would say to us individually and as a church. And that's why we need to pray God help us to hear both individually and as a church what these letters are saying. And to be reminded that they are from a heart of love. They are written to those who, if they are true believers, have been forgiven of the very sins that the Lord Jesus is highlighting and saying you need to deal with. And that he wants us to know these things that we might be prepared for his return that we might not be ashamed. Um, As we said last week, it's helpful to think about these letters as performance reviews in the sense that um, in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the fact that we are stewards, we are servants of the living God. And and when Jesus comes back, uh, there's a sense in which there will be the ultimate performance review where our lives will be evaluated. And these are sort of a preparatory performance reviews where the Lord encourages us to pursue our joy in him and to seek to love better 
Um, we all have room to grow in terms of loving and seeking him. And the, the interesting thing about this is that there's no indication in any of these letters that these churches weren't orthodox. None of the letters are talked to in such a way that they had abandoned the gospel like it talks about in the book of Galatians. So to be orthodox means you at least profess the right gospel. You profess that um, Jesus lived and died and rose again for sinners, and if you turn from your sin and you trust in him, you will be saved. And yet even orthodox people can be swept away by what's going on in the world. And that being drawn away can um, be evidence that we've, as true believers, gone wayward, or maybe we're not true believers. And that's the interesting thing about these letters is that uh, there seems to be three people, three kinds of people in these churches, and churches and assembly of professing believers. And the three kinds of people are the faithful, those are who are Christians and being faithful to the gospel. Then there are those who are wayward Christians, who are truly Christians, but they've gotten off track, and they are caught up in the very kinds of things that the Lord Jesus is addressing that they need to repent of. And then there are those who aren't believers, but they're in the churches, and they're being called to a true faith, because every reward at the end of every letter is ultimately the gift of eternal life. It's, it's, I will reward you with eternal life if you hear and do what I say. So it's, it's a call uh, to the churches to evaluate where they are. Am I a faithful believer? Am I a believer, but have I gone astray in my life and in my thinking? Or am I not even really a true believer in, in light of where my uh, hope and faith lie? And that's why every... Um, letter says those who overcome will inherit these things. The very dangers that are being talked about here are dangers that true faith will ultimately overcome. doesn't mean we won't ever walk away or, or wander away, but ultimately the faith will overcome these things. And so um, I just want to encourage us to think about these letters in that way because it's helpful to try to truly appreciate what the Lord is trying to do for us here through his word, through this truth, if we keep those things in mind. Well, we looked at four of the churches last week, and I won't take the time to review those uh, at this point, but this week we're going to look at, look at three more churches in chapter 3. And Basically, I want to encourage us to think along these lines. Do we see the real danger in this fallen world of hearing the word but not doing the word? of growing weary and doing what is right and wise, and thirdly, the danger of living like you don't need God. These three churches call us to ask those kinds of questions. So let me read for us, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, and we'll read uh, the first letter to the church at Sardis. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, 
and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so the first question that I think this letter raises for us is, do we see the real danger of hearing the word but not doing the word? In verse 3, he says, So remember what you have received and heard, meaning the word that you've received and heard, and keep it. In other words, do it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, he goes on from there. So the whole idea of waking up is an idea of waking up to do something. Uh, Sleep is a picture of inactivity. And so the idea of waking up is I start to do what I'm not doing. And the waking up that he calls them to is the repentance that he's calling them to. He's, He's calling them to repent in the sense of waking up to the word that they've heard in the sense of doing it. You've heard it, you've received it in some sense, but you're not living it out. It's, it's not being fleshed out in your life. You're not focusing your life on actually putting into practice the word that you've heard. There's a story about a, a pastor who was talking to a professing Christian, and he asked him if he was active in a local church. And the guy said, no, um, but the dying thief wasn't active in a church, and yet he was still accepted. And so the pastor said, well, um, how about um, baptism? Have you been baptized? And the guy said, well, um, you know, the dying thief was not baptized, and he still made it to heaven. And the pastor said, well, uh, what about um, partaking of the Lord's Supper? You ever do that? And the guy said, no, but the dying thief didn't either, and Christ still received him. The pastor thought for a minute and said, you know, the only difference between you and the dying thief is that he was dying in his belief in You are dead in yours. So you see the point that the deadness was he wasn't acting on anything he said he believed. It wasn't being fleshed out in his life. He was saying, well, the the dying thief didn't do any of those things, so why should I have to do it? Well, he didn't have the opportunity to do those things. If he had been rescued from the cross, his life would have looked like that because he had a real faith in Jesus. And we know that because Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so uh, Sardis, uh, this letter was written to the church in Sardis. And the interesting thing is that we are the fruit of the, the culture we're brought up in. And the church there, in some sense, was a reflection of the city that they were a part of. Sardis was actually a, a city that... Um, was captured twice because they couldn't, didn't think they could be captured. They were, they were on this high bluff that had three sheer cliffs around it. And they just didn't think anybody could uh, conquer them. And so they never stationed a watch along those cliffs. And even when they were at war, they didn't worry about it. They just kind of went to sleep and didn't believe that they could be conquered. And somebody's climbed up the cliff and opened the gates and let in the army and they were conquered twice that way because they were asleep. They were not vigilant. And that's what someone has said, Sardis's tragic falls were the result of a lack of vigilance in its defenders. They were asleep 
They didn't think they had to do anything. They just assumed that they would be fine. And so um, that's the, in a sense, the air that this church breathed. And it was reflected in the church as well. But the Lord in verse 1 says that he is the... He is the one who has the seven spirits of God, which is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that there are seven different Holy Spirits. It means the sevenfold spirit who in Isaiah talks about a sevenfold ministry of the spirit. So it's a way of talking about the Holy Spirit. And so he says, I'm the one who has the seven spirits of God or the Holy Spirit. I'm the one who gives the Holy Spirit and who holds the seven stars, which is another way of talking about the church itself. And so it's a picture of Christ as the one who gives life. It is, the, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing, the Scripture says. But it's the Spirit who gives life. And Jesus says, I'm the giver of the Spirit. Therefore, I'm the giver of life. I'm the one that can raise you from your practical deadness. And I can empower you to live the life that is the proper response to the truth. And that's why in John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So Lord Jesus says, you can't do anything apart from me, but in me and through me you can do everything you need to do to honor God and to love God. Others And it's through the Holy Spirit that we're empowered to do that. Verse um, 3, I think it is. Let's see. He talks about, um, let's see. Actually, his first one, is it? Yes, he says at the end of verse 1, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Let me just comment on that again. I think the best way to understand that is in light of what James 2 says. Remember James 2 where... James says, so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. He goes on to talk about um, Abraham and the fact that he was willing to offer his, his son Isaac was an expression of his faith. He talks about Rahab who uh, protected the spies, that that was an expression of her faith. He talks about the fact that if you see someone in need and say, go, be warmed and be filled, but you don't give them anything, uh, how can that kind of faith save you? And so he concludes that section by saying, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So the issue here seems to be the issue of having some kind of faith, having received the truth in some sense, but not acting on it. We're kind of sleeping on the truth. We're not active in putting it into practice. And that's why the Lord says, wake up, and keep it and repent. Um, and he promises um, great and wonderful things that are associated with eternal life if we do that. When he says in uh, verse 6, he who has an ear, that means if you understand what I'm saying. He who has an ear. You, you hear these words of mine. If you really understand what I'm saying and you see yourself there, then let him hear, says, he who has an ear, let him hear, which means if you understand, then do something with what you understand. If you have an ear to hear, then let them hear, which means let them heed, let them respond to what I'm saying. The interesting thing in our culture is that there, there's um, it's what has been called the woke movement. 
It doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in this uh, passage here, but it is interesting because there's a sense in which um, the church in America is being called to wake up. And there's a book that um, Eric Mason wrote called Woke Church. But the awakening that's being called for there is about uh, race issues and social justice issues. And I personally believe that it's, it's taken a turn that isn't in line with what the Bible talks about with regard to biblical justice issues. But there is a, a need to, to wake up, not to wake up per se to what that book is arguing for, at least in terms of the kind of um, things it's arguing for. But the Lord Jesus is calling the church to wake up in the sense that wake up to whether or not we're actually taking seriously what the Bible says and seeking by God's grace, depending on the Holy Spirit, praying that God would help us to put it into practice. In other word, God, word, uh, words, God cares whether we take his word seriously and act on what we hear with prayer and our attitudes, words, actions, and lifestyles. He cares whether we trust more and love more in light of what we hear in his word. Again, James 1 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So that's why I've called this church the um, the sleeping and forgetful church. Um, because the Bible calls us to not just hear the word and then walk out and forget what we've heard but to realize that God wants us to apply it in every relationship, to apply it in our marriages, to apply it to our relationship with our kids, to apply it to our relationship with our coworkers, uh, to apply it to our politics. Uh, whatever it may be, God wants us to see that he intends for our word to be fleshed out in these relationships. William Wilberforce was a very practical Christian, and he said, no man has a right to be idle. And he said it in the context of there is so much sin and suffering and pain and hurt in this world that there, there are plenty of opportunities to love people, just like Dan was encouraging us to think about this morning. There's plenty of opportunities to serve and love people. But I'd like to apply that just in the sense that when we think about um, the idea of getting bored but anytime we're bored, it must mean we've forgotten what the Bible says. There, there are so many things the Bible calls us to that there's no place for boredom in the Christian life. There's no place for saying, I don't guess there's anything for me to do today. Because God has given us all kinds of things that he's called us to do to love people and to honor him. And it's a matter of just putting into practice his word. And so the first letter here is an encouragement to us all, my own heart, your hearts, every believer, everyone who professes Christ. Do I take seriously what God says? And am I praying and fighting and working to uh, apply to my life every day? The second letter is the letter to Philadelphia. 
And it says this in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. I know your deeds. Behold, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so again, we want to ask the question in light of this letter, um, do we see the real danger of growing weary and doing what is right and wise? Now, the reason why I, I say that is in verse 11, he says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Of these three churches, uh, the first one and the third one received no commendation. This church receives no correction. So, why would we say this church needs to not grow weary? By the implication of what he tells them to do. Does the Lord tell us to do things for no reason? No, he tells us to do things because of the possibility, the temptation of not doing them. And so when he tells them, hold fast what you have... It's because there are going to be things in your life that are going to cause you to want to let those things go. And so the implication is that what they needed to do was to hold on to what they were already holding on to. One of my favorite stories that I've mentioned several times over the years is just the, um, the pilot who falls out of the plane because the back door was left open, commuter flight from... Portland to Boston and and uh, he falls out of the plane and he catches on to the ladder of the plane and basically he's traveling at uh, 200 miles per hour at an altitude of about 4,000 feet and he's holding on to this ladder that he's caught onto and the co-pilot thinks he fell into the ocean because they were flying over the ocean on their way to Boston and so they make a quick landing after about 10 minutes or so And they find the pilot who fell out of this commuter plane on the plane, holding onto the bottom of the plane on this ladder that was on there. And his head was about 12 inches off the ground. And the the crew that came to take care of him, uh, they said it took them a long time to peel his fingers off that ladder. He was holding on for dear life. He knew... As someone said, that there are times when you might not feel like holding on. But have you considered the alternative? He could have said, this is rough going. This, these winds are high. This is a scary thing. I'm tired of holding on. I'm weary. 
But the alternative is death, just to let go. And so he held on for dear life. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus is talking about here. Don't grow weary of holding on to the truth. Don't go grow weary of seeking to do what is right and wise, even when the winds of culture are blowing fiercely and trying to blow you off track. Hold on. Don't give up and don't give in. The city here in Philadelphia was a city that actually had experienced a number of earthquakes. And for years after one big earthquake had uh, these tremors on a regular basis. And so you could call it the shaky city. Uh, the city where you uh, could easily easily be shaken from your stability. And that was the temptation in a figurative sense with regard to the church is that they would be shaken from their firm hold on the truth. That they'd be shaken from their commitment to a life of doing what is right and wise in the eyes of God. What the Lord Jesus says in verse 7 is, uh, he calls himself the one who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David. That means the key to the messianic kingdom. He says, I have the key to everything your heart longs for. I have the key to heaven. I have the key to the kingdom of God. And if you hold on to me, you will have everything that your heart longs for. There'll be all kinds of winds that blow in your life that say, oh, this Christianity thing, it won't result in what you're hoping for. Can you see any evidence of it right now? Everything is against you. Uh, Everything is falling apart. Nobody believes what you believe. Jesus says, hold on, because I have opened the door to heaven for you. Hold on and don't give up and don't give in. That's why he talks about in verse 10, you've kept the word of my perseverance. Even though there's going to be testing, there's going to be severe testing, but hang on, hold fast to what you have. And he promises in the latter part of the passage that they would be a fixture, a pillar in the temple of God and that they would have God's name written on them, which is both a picture of permanence and a picture of belonging. Well, Let's think about this a little bit. The real danger of growing weary and doing what is right and wise, which is a test for all of us at various times. I think I uh, thought about uh, the Josh, Josh Harris's of our day. There have been a lot of Christians that have, uh, well-known Christians, that have walked away from the faith over the last few years. And I think about what Josh Harris said one who wrote, I kissed dating goodbye, and ultimately, in a sense, as someone has said, kiss Christianity goodbye. He said, I have undergone a ma- massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. When he said that, that caused seismic waves in the Christian community. When someone like Josh Harris says, I'm not a Christian anymore. I've had a massive shift. There was seismic things going on in his heart, and it shifted him away from Christ. And so um, that's why the Bible says things like in Hebrews 3, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm 
until the end. There's no doubt that our profession of faith in Christ is going to be tested. It will be tested. Do I really believe the gospel? Do I really believe in the God of the Bible? Do I really believe in the Jesus in the gospels? Do I really believe that he has the key to eternal life? Or not? Do I believe in the face of strong winds that are blowing in the opposite direction in our culture? Do I really believe that? Our faith will be tested. But it's important for us to realize that God cares for his weary people. And it can be a wearying thing when you're having to fight, when you're having to swim upstream all the time, when you're having to walk against the wind all the time, when it feels like you're always going in the opposite direction of what many other people around you are going. God cares for his weary people, but calls us to keep going and not give up, though the road is long and hard. The danger of falling away is real. The Bible says there is a real danger of falling away, but no real believers will fall away. But why? Because they will heed the warning and hold on. That's the point, is that there's a real danger, but real believers will never fall away. But those real believers will heed the warning and hold on. And that's why Jesus could say, if you have ears to hear, if you have ears to understand, then let them hear, respond to the call to hold on and fight and not give in to the winds that are blowing around you and blowing you in the opposite direction. But one of the important things about holding on is we really have to fight to keep in mind that when Jesus says, I have the key of David, the key to heaven, that I have the key to everything your heart longs for, which means I have the key to the joy and happiness your heart longs for. We have to keep that in view because it's kind of like C.S. Lewis said, simply saying, I do what I do because it's my duty will never be enough to keep you holding on. You know, I have to go to church because it's just what we do. I have to read my Bible because it's just what we do. I have to pray. It's just what we do. That's not enough to keep you holding on. You have to have a vision of Jesus and you have to feed a vision of Jesus and God that says he is the supreme good. There's no life outside of him. And that's why C.S. Lewis could say, a perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He'd always want the right thing more than the wrong one. Duty is only a substitute for love of God and other people, like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch at times, but of course it is idiotic to use the crutch when our own legs, our own loves, tastes, habits, etc. can do the journey on their own. What he's saying is that duty is just a crutch to keep us going when we're not healthy. But it is not what should be the primary things that, that motivates us. Duty will not be enough to keep you holding on to Jesus. It has to be a vision of Jesus that sees the beauty of Christ and sees that beauty as satisfying and that there's no beauty, true beauty, that satisfies outside of Christ. He talks about the fact that um, there's a morality or duty Uh, that some people follow that will never make a man happy in himself or dear to others. 
He says, this kind of idea is shocking but undeniable. We do not wish either to be or to live among people who are clean or honest or kind as a matter of duty. We want to be and associate with people who like being clean and honest and kind. See what he's saying there? He's saying we don't just want to be among people that feel like it's their duty to do what is right and wise and good according to God. We want to be among people that find their joy in doing what is right and wise and good according to God. Because that's the only thing that's going to last. Duty in and of itself is not sufficient. That's why Christ says, see me as the key to all that your heart longs for. See my beauty, feed that beauty. Which brings us to the last last letter. Um, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the last question in light of this letter is, do you you see the real danger of living like you don't need God? not, Not the danger of saying that you don't need God, but the danger of living like you don't need God. God. Um, You may remember the story of the woman in Los Angeles uh, back in 1988 who in the middle of the night fell asleep and uh, ran off um, a transition um, road in Los Angeles and was dangling from the overpass by just one tire. And some passersby came along, got some ropes to try to stabilize it until the um, fire department and others could get there and they finally got a fire truck and put a ladder underneath the car so that it couldn't fall and, and it took them ultimately two and a half hours to pull this car up and to save this 19-year-old woman and every time they moved the car she would yell and scream because she was hurt and it was in pain and after this two and a half hours when they finally got her um, out of this precarious situation Uh, one of the uh, fire captains said, it was kind of funny, Uh, this young woman kept saying all the time that we were working to help her, I'll do it myself, I'll do it myself, I'll do it myself. It's a great picture of the church at Laodicea because the church at Laodicea was a very, very wealthy church in a very, very wealthy city. Um, In this city, Uh, It was so wealthy that when it was devastated by an earthquake, just like Philadelphia was, Philadelphia um, 
that city had to depend on assistance from the emperor for many, many years. Um, Laodicea, who was also uh, devastated by the earthquake, said, no, thank you. We'll take care of it. We'll, We'll pay for it out of our own resources. We've got all the resources we need. We don't need any assistance from the emperor. So it was a very prominent center for banking and commerce. It had a great textile production of black woolen products. It had a medical school where they developed things you could put on your eyes, all of which are reflected in the letter that the Lord Jesus writes to them. But part of their problem was is that even though they were so wealthy, they didn't have a good water supply. And so when it talks about them not being cold or hot, they were close to some cities that uh, were uh, had access to either hot or cold water. There was a city um, north of them that had hot springs. And those hot springs were really good if you had some health problems. They had medicinal value. Then south of Laodicea, they had... Um, in Colossae, you had great drinking water, cold, pure drinking water. And so many people, when they hear what the Lord Jesus says, when he says, I wish you were um, cold or hot, very well could be talking about the fact, I wish you had something of benefit to offer to the people around you. But you don't. You're not like... Uh, the city that has the, the hot water that can be healing. You're not like the city that has the cold water that can be refreshing. You have lukewarm water, and, and they had to pipe in water. And by the time they piped it in from these other hot springs, it was lukewarm. And it was basically something that if you tasted it, you'd want to spit it out. It wasn't worth anything. And the Lord Jesus uses this picture of what some people take as spiritual temperature. You know, these they were just kind of tepid Christians. Others would see it as they just had no benefit, nothing to offer the people around them. Why? Because they weren't needy. And therefore, they were just like the other people in the city, having no need of God. Wealthy people, wealthy unbelievers that had no need of God, wealthy professing Christians don't really have any practical need of God. And so what kind of witness is that going to be to that community? No witness at all. That's something that you just spit out and reject. The Lord Jesus calls them to a repentance. He calls them to um, seek him for what they need. Um, He tells them, In verse 18, I advise from you to buy from me gold refined by fire, which is a reference to their banking industry, uh, so that you may become rich. White garments uh, refers to their garment factory, so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see, a reference to their medical school and the, um, the eye salve that they produced there. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Note that. Those whom I love, I call to repentance. I call to uh, deal appropriately. And the interesting thing is, he says in verse 19, therefore be zealous and repent. And then he says this, behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So what does repentance look like for this church? Looks like fellowship. It says, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Um, there have been times um, that I think all of us have felt like that we were so busy that we really didn't have time to read our Bibles and pray and seek God. And that's an ongoing temptation for many of us in a very busy world and in a busy Southern California lifestyle. And one illustration of some of the busiest people you'll find are are young moms with toddlers. They tend to be very, very busy. And yet they're just one illustration of something that's true of all of us at various times in various ways. But I want to just uh, share something with you as I wrap this up this morning from a young mom who's talking about the importance of the very kind of thing the Lord Jesus is calling all of us to, regardless of whatever our busyness might be. She said, Throughout the season of motherhood, I've learned my quiet times are as unique as each new baby giggle and as, in, as inconsistent as a toddler's nap schedule. And you know what? That's okay. Just because it isn't quiet doesn't mean you can't meet with God. Just because you can't get a minute alone doesn't mean you can't pour your heart out in prayer. Just because you can't spend hours like you used to doesn't mean you can't take five minutes. Fellow mamas, can we ban mommy guilt in our idealized versions of what our quiet time should look like and instead bask in mommy grace? So many moms give up quiet times altogether because they can't do them in the morning or they can't do them for at least 30 minutes or they never have a quiet moment alone. She says, I don't believe it's God's heart. And this is my point. I don't believe it's God's heart for us to turn our backs on his word and tell him we will get back with him later once we've raised our children. We need Jesus to help us raise our children, Mama. Now more than ever, we need to be saturated in the word of God. Now that's a word from a mom to other moms. My point is that's what Jesus says is a word to all of us, regardless of who we are, whether we're mothers or not. But whatever place we find ourselves where we feel like we're too busy or too well off, like in Laodicea, to really need the Lord. And what I mean when I say need, I'm not saying we would say we don't need the Lord. The question is whether or not we are living like we don't need the Lord. That's the point, right? And the Lord Jesus says, he calls this church to ask themselves, If you say, I'm rich and have need of nothing, are you saying that with your lips or maybe just saying that with your life? I'm rich and I have need of nothing because I'm not seeking God for it, so I must have what I need. I'm not seeking him in his word. I'm not seeking him in prayer on a regular basis. And this mother is saying similar things to what I believe our Lord is saying in the word is don't live under the illusion that you're rich when you're not. Don't live under the illusion that you can handle life on your own even though you might never say it with your lips but you might be saying it with your life because you're not making the time to read the word and to pray and to put him first and seeking him that's why jesus could say in matthew 6 seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you whatever you need in your life god cares whether we seek him first and live like we need him 
To not do so is to be practical atheists and idolaters. It is to be proud and ungrateful. But God gives grace to the humble. That's why in James chapter 4, God calls the believers there not to look to themselves or to the things of the world for what they need, but to draw near to God. And he promises, God promises that he will draw near to us. They have said of Charles Simeon that he spent time with the Lord on a daily basis and he had a lot of trials in his life, but he was comforted in all his trials and prepared for every duty because he made time with the Lord. Whatever that might have looked like, it doesn't all have to look the same, but the principle is the same. And so it's, as we wrap up, uh, we just need to ask ourselves, and why don't we just bow together in prayer? And let me just encourage you to, to think about these questions as you seek to respond in your own heart, as you seek to have an ear to hear, to understand what the Lord is saying to all of us, myself included, and to seek to respond as we should. Um, do you hear the word, but not give sufficient attention to putting it into practice in your life? Are you growing weary and doing what is right and wise? Just getting tired of the fight, getting tired of the effort, and just kind of going with the flow. Are you living practically like you don't need God? Father, these are important questions for all of us. Indeed, these questions are given to us by implication through your word, uh, from your heart of love for us, because you love us. Um, those whom you love, you call to repentance. You call to turn to you. you. You call us to address the things in our lives that are actually keeping us from the joy and peace we long for. They're actually keeping us from loving in the ways we want to love and should love. Father, help us this morning to see where we are and to see what we need to do in response to your word as we prepare to celebrate what you've done for us. Help us to hear this as words of love that comes from your heart of forgiveness toward all those who are trusting you. And help us, Lord, to have ears to hear and to respond for your glory, for our joy in you, and for the good of those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.